Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 12, verses 27 through 36. We're continuing to work our way through this, uh, this saddle, right? This transition from the book of signs to the book of exaltation. As we prepare for the book of exaltation, as we work our way through this saddle, let me ask, do you enjoy the tension of anticipation? I was thinking about our text uh, this morning, and I was thinking about different situations in our lives uh, which are building to a climactic moment. And I realized as I was thinking about it, how much of our lives kind of depends on this, on this movement. Our lives revolve around this tension. Our children go to bed on Christmas Eve, hardly able to contain themselves for midnight when Santa comes down the chimney, right? Or think about even your own plans as you're waiting for this summer. We make vacation plans. If you're Mike and Marcia, you're not waiting for the summer, you're waiting for Friday. And you spend all of this time thinking and planning and preparing and, and packing such that the night before vacation, you can hardly rest for the fear of forgetting something and for joy of the upcoming adventure. Even on vacation, as you're riding on that roller coaster and you're slowly crawling to the top of that first hill, the tension and the nervous energy is building until you crest the hill and go plunging down the other side at 100 miles an hour and all the tension is gone. And then you're just frightened. <laughs> In a real sense, our lives revolve around this tension of anticipation and then the fulfillment of the moment. But it's interesting, these moments of, of significant tension and, and these, these moments in our lives which are so important to us, they're mainly just important to us or to our immediate family. You know, it's not as though everyone at work really cares that much about your family vacation. They may be happy that you're going, but really it only impacts them as much as they have to make up for your work while, they're, while you're gone. The life of Jesus has been building up to a certain moment, what Jesus calls his hour. In our text last week, we began to hear Jesus speak about this hour, and we saw that that, that hour is building, it is coming, and that hour takes center stage in our text this morning. We started to see this theme about the hour of Jesus even way back in chapter 2 when Jesus says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. In John seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 30, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid an out, a hand on him because his hour had not come. And then in John eight twenty, these words he spoke in the treasury, as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. The ministry of Jesus has been building up to this certain hour. In our text last week, we heard Jesus proclaim, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now he continues to explain the significance of this hour in our text this morning. Follow along as I read John 12, <clears throat> Verses 27 through 36, John 12, 27 through 36. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. In our text this morning, Jesus is explaining to us the significance of his hour. This hour is not just one more moment in the history of the world. It was not a moment that was meaningful to Jesus, but really had little bearing on the people around Jesus. This moment, this hour, literally marks the division of history, the division of eras. There was a time before Jesus, and there is a time after Jesus, a time before the cross and a time after the cross. In our text this morning, we are going to see that the hour of Jesus' glorification marks for Jesus the hour of judgment and salvation. And for the Jews, it marks an hour of a final offer of salvation. And this is not just interesting history for us. No, this has really practical payoff. Because Jesus passed through this hour, because Jesus was glorified, we must walk by faith in him. That's the significance of this text. So this morning, we're going to consider this hour of Jesus as, first of all, it's an hour of glorification, and then second, it's an hour of faith. And we're going to see that since Jesus was glorified, you and I must walk by faith in him. There will be an hour of glorification, hour of faith. We should be done in two hours. Buckle in. No, I'm just kidding. Jesus first explains his hour of glorification. And he speaks about this hour of glory. And he explains to us that this hour of glory is actually an hour of judgment and an hour of salvation. Look first with me at the hour of glory that Jesus explains in verses 27 to 28. Now is my heart troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come into this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So this hour of glory is for Jesus an hour of tension. It's an hour of anguish. Jesus says, my soul is troubled. When we think about the anguish of Jesus before the crucifixion, normally our thoughts go to the Garden of Gethsemane. That, that hour when he is in the garden and he is praying, and as it were, uh, he was sweating as it were uh, 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 drops of blood there in the garden. But that tension was felt by Jesus more than just in that moment in the garden. 
This moment here in John 12 is as much as a day or two before that. And even here we can see the sorrow in Jesus' heart, the tension. Jesus is telling the people around him, my soul is troubled. Jesus knows what is coming. In fact, he, he prays, Father, save me from this hour. Just like he later prays in the garden, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. We hear this prayer, Father, save me from this hour. But in that moment, just like what will happen in the garden, in this moment, Jesus submits himself to the plan and the purpose and the will of God. He prays, Father, glorify your name. One person said that in this moment, the horror of death and the ardor of his obedience were meeting together. Notice what is foremost in the mind of Jesus at this moment of anguish. What does Jesus pray? Father, glorify your name. And that's really been the theme of Jesus' ministry, hasn't it? Way back in John chapter 7 and verse 18, we read, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. Jesus says, But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus said later on in chapter 8, verses 29 and in verse number 50, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Listen to this, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And then he says in verse 50, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. So over and over and over in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus is making it very clear. He is living for the glory of God. And in this, the, the hardest moment of his life, he did not swerve from that commitment. Jesus did far more than merely passively submit to the Father's will the way a criminal submits to his final act of, of, of uh, verdict of punishment from, from a judge. Jesus is actually actively pursuing the glory of God in this moment. God's glory is the highest value in the soul of Jesus. While I recognize that you are not Jesus, he is nevertheless an example for you and I in this moment. There are times when we know, we just know what we're supposed to do. God's written word is here in front of us. It makes it very clear the decision that we're supposed to make. And there are times when we know that to please God, to glorify God is going to come at great cost to us. In those moments, what is it that motivates your soul? I can think of a couple of wrong motivations that we could have. We, on the one hand, your soul may so value its own will, your own will, your own pleasure, that you pull a Jonah and you run in the other direction. That's one possibility that we must guard our hearts from. Another temptation is that we will choose to obey the will of God not because we value the glory of God above everything else, but because we fear the possible punishment that will come to us if we disobey. Now, I'm not, I'm not doubting the, the discipline of God. I'm not doubting the possibility that God will discipline us for disobedience. But if you obey God 
only because you are afraid of what he might do to you if you disobey, then you're still not being motivated by the glory of God. You're not valuing the glory of God above all else. And so as you consider the beauty of Jesus here in John chapter 12, see in Jesus a radical commitment to the glory of God in all of life. Make that purpose your own purpose, no matter the cost, because God is worth it. The glory of God is worth it. That's what we see in Jesus in this moment. When you know the right thing to do, no matter the cost, don't let the word, the final word of your soul, this word may come, but don't let the final word of your soul be, save me from this hour. No, instead, let the final word of your soul be, Jesus, glorify your name. Precisely because you see that glory as valuable above all else. That's what's got your soul. That's what captures your heart. There's a word from God, a glorious word from God in this moment. Notice what God says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The Father has glorified his name throughout the ministry of Jesus. He will glorify his name again in this final hour, the hour of the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. God promises to answer Jesus' prayer. We have the promise from God that he is indeed glorified. He is honored when we value him above all else. You know, brothers and sisters, that promise does extend to us as well. We too can receive that promise of God being glorified in our lives when we value him above all else. Jesus is setting a pattern, example for us in our lives. You can't die for anyone else's sins. You can't be resurrected for anyone. Jesus' hour is special. Nevertheless, the values that drive the heart of Jesus at this moment, the value of Jesus for the glory of God above all else, that value ought to likewise motivate your soul. We have in verses 29 and 30 words from the crowd, and Jesus is going to address this a little bit more in verses 34 to 36. So I'm going to leave verses 29 and 30 alone for just a moment. Instead, look with me at verse number 31. Jesus says in verse number 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now this is an amazing declaration from Jesus. Israel has just welcomed Jesus in as their king and Messiah. They're expecting Jesus to come and to bring in the last days. They're expecting the day of the Lord, the day of the visitation of Yahweh. This was a, this was a promised day since the days of Moses. Israel has been waiting for this day. Israel is waiting for a day when God will come and will judge the world in righteousness, condemning the unjust, bringing righteousness and the kingdom of God to earth. This is what Israel has been waiting for. And though Jesus rode through the gates of Jerusalem on a donkey and not a stallion, nevertheless, Jesus is still carrying out the judgment of God which had been promised for millennia. How is he doing this? You know, something amazing is about to happen in the death of Jesus. 
the judgment that God promised, that end times judgment, that judgment of the last day, it is as though that judgment is being pulled forward in time and being visited on Jesus himself at the cross. The cross of Jesus marks the beginning of the day of the Lord. It marks the day when God pours out his wrath on sinful man. Now is the judgment of the world, Jesus says. As Jesus dies on the cross, the unrighteous world which rejects Jesus as the Messiah, rejects Jesus as the Savior of the world, that world is judged and condemned on the cross. Now it may be the case that every individual will one day bow their knee before Jesus on the judgment day, but that future day is going to come because this day came first. Because the cross comes first. Because Jesus died on the cross, in that hour, the whole world now stands condemned until they believe. The righteousness of God has actually already been vindicated. God has already been demonstrated as righteous through the cross of Jesus. Everything is now waiting for that final day. Now, this is bad news for everyone who doesn't believe in Jesus. It's not as though the whole world might be condemned one day. No, that, that future judgment, in a sense, has already been carried out. It's already been executed on Jesus. And all those who are not united in Jesus by faith will most assuredly stand condemned on the last day. That's the significance of these words. Now is the judgment of this world. Not only is this an hour of judgment on the world, notice Jesus says, now the ruler of this world has been cast out. Satan was conquered on the cross. Because Jesus was glorified through his death and resurrection, he displaced the ruler of this world. Now, this puts the temptation of Jesus in a rather ironic light. You remember that temptation of Jesus that happened three years earlier? Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the ruler of this world took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Then what did he say? He said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. The ruler of this world, in that moment, exercised a usurped and a stolen authority. And he offered Jesus a way to retake that authority over the world. And yet, because Jesus valued the glory of God above all, Jesus cast out the ruler of this world from this place of wrongful, usurped authority. Did Jesus glorify God by dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and ascending to the right hand of the Father? If he did, then we have all the conclusive evidence that we need that the ruler of this world has been condemned. He has no more dominion. He, he is a conquered foe. And although he still rages... Although he still accuses, although he still tempts, according to Jesus, the ruler of this world is, as it were, all bark and no bite. 
Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When you look to Jesus, see and value the glory of the one who has declared God righteous through his death and resurrection. See the one who has conquered the devil. This Jesus is glorious. But the glory of God continues. We see that this hour of the glory of Jesus is not only an hour of judgment, it's also an hour of salvation. Jesus, Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Notice what it says. He, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus is talking about how he is going to glorify the Father. Now he's speaking about being lifted up over the earth. And, and these words are, are calling to mind a prophecy that Isaiah gave back in Isaiah chapter 52, 53. It's the text that Jeff read for us this morning. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, Jesus is in Palestine in the first century actually speaking a little bit of a different language than what, the, what Isaiah had written in 400 years earlier. Jesus' Bible was actually in the language of Greek. Isaiah had written in the language of Hebrew. And so what Jesus has is a translation of what was written in Hebrew into Greek. I mention all this because it's interesting. The last words of this verse when, when the text says, he shall be high and lifted up, he shall be exalted. In Jesus' Bible, that last word there, exalted, is the same word as glorified. My servant shall be high, shall be lifted up, and shall be glorified. That same text in Isaiah, just a couple of verses earlier, says, The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Isaiah says, All the nations will see the power of God. All the ends of the earth will see this. And now Jesus says, As He is lifted up, He is going to draw all people to Himself. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Or to put it the other way around, Isaiah was looking forward to Jesus when he wrote his prophecy in Isaiah 52 and 53. This is also, this lifting up of Jesus and this connection to Isaiah has been another theme that we've seen throughout the Gospel of John. Back in John chapter 3, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. He said to the crowd in John chapter 8, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. It is through Jesus being lifted up that he will draw all men to himself. It's through Jesus being lifted up that all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. 
And then John comments to us in verse number 30, um, 32, 33, he said this to show by the, what kind of death he was going to die. And so Jesus being lifted up is showing his death. But the interesting thing is that it's also showing his exaltation. Him being lifted up isn't only a reference to his death. It's this whole death, burial, and resurrection ascension. This is all part of the hour of Jesus. The glorification of Jesus, the hour of Jesus, is not just his death. That's the beginning of it, certainly. But the hour of Jesus, the hour of the exaltation of Jesus, continues through the resurrection and the ascension. Jesus has been lifted up. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father. The lifting up of Jesus began at the cross and it culminated in the ascension. And so, when you look to the glory of God in Jesus, when you see the glory of God in Jesus, you are looking to a Jesus who has been lifted up. You are looking to a Jesus who God has exalted who God has given a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, of things in heaven, of things on earth, and of things under the earth. At the name of Jesus every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This Jesus, through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, this Jesus has declared the judgment of all those who do not believe in Him. Not only that, but Jesus has also brought around an hour of salvation. He is now drawing all peoples to himself. So as you consider the glory of Jesus in this moment, do you see the glory of God in Jesus through salvation and judgment? Do you see that God is glorious to condemn unrighteousness, to condemn the devil? Do you see that God is glorious to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, to all peoples? If you believe in Jesus this morning, your believing in Jesus is bringing glory to God. That's the point. Isn't that glorious? This hour of the glory of Jesus, the hour of salvation and judgment, is also an hour of faith. It's an hour of the offer of the gospel. Notice with me verses 29 and 30. And then 34 to 36. 29 to 30, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Verses 34 to 36, so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Messiah remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. So the Father spoke from heaven. I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again in you. And it seems, uh, if just looking at these, these verses, it seems like the crowd that's all standing there, they don't understand what God is saying. 
Now, why would this be? Why would it be that some crowd thinks it's just thunder and others think that it's an angel or something? Jesus says, God spoke and he didn't speak for my sake, he spoke for your sake. So, if God spoke for the sake of the people, why couldn't they understand him? They couldn't understand him because they didn't believe. That's been another main point that we've seen throughout the Gospel of John, isn't it? All the way back to John chapter 7 and verse 17 and several occasions since then, we have seen that believing comes first and then comes knowing. John 7, 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, then he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. In other words, we don't know first in order to believe. No, we believe first in order to know. Do you remember what Augustine said? Believe that you may understand. If you don't believe in Jesus, you will not truly know God. You can't. And that's why the crowds are in confusion. They don't believe in Jesus. And so they hear this sound. They hear the voice of God and they say, oh, it's thunder. It's the voice of an angel. God had spoken for their benefit. Yet because they don't believe, they don't understand. And this brings us to verses 34 to 36. And Jesus is going to take this one last opportunity to call this Jewish crowd to believe in him. Their time is growing short. You can hear the urgency in Jesus' tone. Stop speculating about me and start believing, he says. And Jesus draws on this picture of darkness and light. This has been another important illustration throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus is the light who has shone into the darkness. The darkness did not overcome it, chapter 1. Jesus, the true light, gives light to everyone, John 1.9. But people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, John 3.19. Jesus promises that whoever walks with him, whoever follows him, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light, John 8, 12. Jesus encourages us to walk in the day, because if you walk in the night, you will stumble, because the light is not in you, John 11. And now Jesus urges his hearers, walk while you still have the light. While you still have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. For these Jews, the hour of the glorification of Jesus is actually an hour of transition. There's night coming. Things are, gonna sh things are going to change. Things are going to move from the light to the darkness. Interestingly, it's at the same time for the Jews a transition from light to darkness. It is for the Gentiles a time of light. The gospel is about to go out to the Gentiles and Jesus is going to draw all peoples to himself. Jesus is offering the Jews the promise, the promise of the gospel that if they believe, they can be saved. But their time is running short. As we consider these words of Jesus in our own time, in our own age, we can rejoice that the Son of Man was lifted up because he is now drawing all people to himself. 
you and I, as Gentiles, we are the fruit of this transition. Because we believe we are showing the truth of Jesus' words. Jesus was lifted up. Jesus is drawing the Gentiles to himself. The gospel has gone out into all of the world precisely because Jesus was lifted up. But you know, there's always an urgency in the offer of the gospel. If you hear the gospel message today, if you hear the call of salvation today and you are not believing, today is the day of salvation. The author of Hebrews says, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the days of the rebellion. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, behold, today is the day of salvation. God is not promising you life tomorrow, no matter your age. And even if he grants you life tomorrow, he is not granting you an opportunity to believe tomorrow. It may be too late. So if you hear his voice today, believe today. As you have the light, believe in the light. If you see the glory of God in this text, believe in him. Value him above your own pleasures and desires. Value him above your sin and believe in him. Christian, you too must walk by faith precisely because you see the glory of God in Jesus. And for you, walking by faith means valuing God's will, valuing God's purposes above your own. Even if you know that it's going to cost you everything. That's what glorifies God. When you walk by faith, you are actively pursuing the glory of God. You're not just kind of sitting back and saying, well, whatever. No, no, no. You seek to honor Jesus in your decisions. Jesus is the glorious Son of God. Jesus, in the hour of His glorification, He brought an hour of salvation and an hour of judgment on this earth. So if you see Him, if you are beholding Him, then glorify Him by believing in Him. Walk by faith in Him, even through your hour of trial. Father, I thank You for this text.